0: Coop, <laughs> Listening to the coffee hour. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth.
0: Thanks to Concordia University Wisconsin for supporting the coffee hour. Find out more about Concordia University Wisconsin at cuw.edu.
1: Live uncommon. I'm pretty excited because it is History
0: Day. That's right, we get to continue our history series with Dr. Rast of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We are looking at the history of Lutherans in North America, particularly the groups leading up to the formation of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod to help us understand who we are, where we've come from as we prepare for the LCMS convention. Dr. Rast, welcome back to The Coffee Hour. Thank you. It's a delight to be with you. You know, this is really fun for us. I hope it's fun (laughs) for you, too. We love doing history series because we just get to dig into rich history with the people who've done all the the legwork and studied and, you know, have degrees in this so that we can just sit at their feet and learn all the history. So last time we talked, we learned that there were at least 58 synods in North America, (laughs) Um, that had formed from the various Lutheran groups that had immigrated to the states, or to the colonies, really, and then later the states. What were some of those synods, maybe some of the larger ones, that had persisted, or maybe even some of them that that, that didn't persist, that but were significant in our history?
2: Yeah, ah, good question. The uh, We mentioned last time, the first really functioning Lutheran synod in America is the Pennsylvania Ministerium, founded in 1748, and it's, it's the— It's the big dog and, and kind of dominates everything until the formation of the New York ministerium or New York Senate in 1786. And, and it's kind of funny the when, when New York forms itself, Pennsylvania says, you can't do that. And (laughs) New York says, well, yes, we can. And, and you can try and stop (laughs) (laughs) it. This is so typical. But uh, anyway, the, uh, so they formed themselves in 1786 and, and grudgingly Pennsylvania finally recognizes them. One of the other things that will happen is, I mean, given geographical distance, the North Carolina Senate is founded in 1803. Pen- Pennsylvania kind of lets it go. You know, you're so far south. There's so few of you. You're not that big a deal. But then Ohio comes along mm. and, and lots of folks are pushing West at this point in time which is 1813 when it becomes a conference of pennsylvania and the ohioans keep saying to back to the leadership of the ministerium hey we need help we need more pastors we have a lot of folks coming in to this part of the country and they're not being served at all and what's happening is they're being drawn off into other church bodies especially german methodism or they're being lost entirely to the faith. They're just giving up the church in completely. So help, help, help. And Pennsylvania says, well, we can't. So they say, well, then we're gonna take care of this ourselves. Well, no, no, you can't do that. So they, how about you form a conference? And they form a conference in 1813. And then they say, you know what? We're doing everything ourselves. Let's just form a synod. So in 1818, the Ohio Senate is formed. In time, you get enough of these Virginia, Maryland becomes a synod in 1820. Tennessee becomes a synod in 1820. But several of them say, you know, we ought to coordinate our work into a, a, a larger national synod that can handle things like producing a hymnal, maybe doing publication work more broadly speaking, training pastors, you know, doing that here instead of depending on European immigrants, and, you know, things along those lines. And so in 1820, the first... National Lutheran Synod is formed, the General Synod it's called, and the General Synod is not particularly robust in its Lutheran identity, at least confessionally speak. They they don't mention the Book of Concord in their constituting documents. Hmm. They talk about Luther's small catechism, but they see it as kind of temporary, saying, well, we need to write something that's more applicable to our circumstances here in America, and out of this will emerge A perspective that will self-identify and and very purposefully so as American Lutheranism. And their argument is we've, you know, what the Reformation is really about is continual reformation of the church, continual improvement of the church, including bringing it up to date to the point where we have to have the courage to shed some of the older thinking that really doesn't apply here in America any longer. And one of the key figures in this regard will be a guy named Samuel Simon Schmucker. And that's Mm. actually his name. So Schmucker and his colleagues are pushing this kind of updated form of Lutheranism. And they have the institutions, they have the, you know, for example, they have the Seminary at Gettysburg, Lutheran Theological Seminary at Gettysburg, which is founded in 1826. They have the newspapers, you know, the Lutheran Observer, which is published out of Baltimore beginning in 1831. They're the ones who, who kind of provide the structure for Lutheranism, generally speaking. And they kind of run the show in the general synod as well. So you have that. And, and, and they also are saying, you know, we've got to dump German because German's past and English is future. So we, we need to kind of pursue this radical and progressive new path. Well, just as they're coming to their ascendance is when this huge wave of immigrants comes in and the immigrants are coming from places where they've had, you know, for example, the, the Saxons who helped form the Missouri Senate, they're coming from a place where they've been persecuted, very frankly, because of their confession. And now they come to America and they bump into these folks are saying, just give it up. You know, we're, we've done it voluntarily. You, you were forced into this. We're doing it voluntarily. And they're like, nope, ain't going to happen. So uh, you have that kind of tension built in there. Add to that the language question, German versus English, and then with other immigrants, other Scandinavian languages as well. And then the just the basic question of geography. And you end up with this explosion of church bodies. I guess a fourth element would be, and in America, you can do this you know, if you want to. Hey, we, I mean, if the three of us want to form a synod, we can do it right now. So, okay. Lutheran Church last synod no, no, again, no takers. But uh. I signed something. There's
1: enough. There's
2: enough. There's enough exactly. I don't, I don't exactly. need
1: another synod in my life. <laughs> so we've got we've gotten to the the immig- the big immigration. We've got the general synod that happens with the Lutherans that were here before that that large immigration that happened what about what happens when all of these german lutherans these more confessional lutherans come and and don't want the general synod necessarily and and have issues with that how do they start to organize themselves once they come
2: yeah yeah great question here here i can i kind of like to turn to our the, the folks that founded our seminary especially the the great missionary pastor friedrich weinicke who comes to America in 1838 and he's you know it's it he, he follows kind of a typical path he gets a very fine education German university prepared for ministry but then kind of cools his heels for a number of years because there's no placement for him. and this is the usual so what do you do you well you're a tutor for a wealthy family so you teach their kids latin uh, and he does that and is like this is not my calling so what what are you going to do well don't have a position here in Germany. I'll go to America, you know. And then so he hops on the boat with another guy and comes to America, and gets off the boat in Baltimore in the summer of eighteen thirty-eight, and is walking around, you know, just trying to get a, the lay of the land. Bumps into a guy who's wearing the kind of attire that is typical for clergy—a black clergy coat—and asks him, "Are you a Lutheran?" And the guy says, "In German, of course," he asks him, and the guy says, "Yeah." Close enough, you know. I mean, you know. <laughs> and but he's not. He's a Methodist, and he invites Winikin to church the next, you know, the next weekend. So Winikin goes to a Methodist service, a German Methodist service in America. Years later, he's asked, "So, what did you think about this?" He said, "Well, I honestly didn't know quite what to think, but I knew one thing: it wasn't Lutheran." <laughs> and so he he gets introduced to American denominationalism right off the bat. And it's, well, you, you have to ask a lot more questions here in America about people's religious kind of character. You just can't take things for granted. So to make a longer story short, what he ends up doing is being, connects with the Pennsylvania ministerium initially. They say, you need to go out West because that's where all the immigrants are going. That's where all the German speakers are headed. And you need to be a missionary to them, organize them in the congregations. He does, comes to Fort Wayne, in the fall, early fall of 1838, and is immediately grabbed by the folks of St. Paul Congregation, which is still a vibrant congregation here in Fort Wayne, founded in 1837. Their pastor had died earlier in the year, in May of 1838, and and they're afraid, we're not going to get another pastor anytime soon. So when this guy shows up, they're like, you're our pastor. God sent you here. And he's like, "No, the Pennsylvania ministerium sent me out here to be a missionary. No, no. God sent you to be our pastor. They <laughs> let the folks down at Adams County at Zion Friedheim know about this. And he's like, and you're our pastor too. And winnikins I, I don't, I, I don't think so. You know, I got too much work. Well, long story short, again, he ends up serving both those congregations and a bunch of others in time, as well as doing missionary work. And as he travels around, around the Northeast Indiana, Northwest Ohio, Southern Michigan, he comes to the conclusion that we have a crisis on our hand. And the crisis is these immigrants are flooding in and it's just going to become more pronounced. He's smart enough to realize that these immigrants are flooding in and they're already, you know, doing without spiritual care in any meaningful form. So we need more pastors. We need more congregations and, and we need to get these folks organized. So what do you do? Well, he appeals, of course, first back to Pennsylvania and they kind of fail to come through again. <laughs> and so he then says, well, I'm going to appeal to Germany. And he gets the ear of a pastor in Franconia named Wilhelm Leah. And Leah says, you know what? We're going to train pastors quickly, well, and send them to America. Well, we're going to train teachers, actually, is what he says originally. But but once they finish their training there, they get here to America. They typically find that they're as well-trained as other pastors, and so they just end up moving into that realm. So very dynamic, very creative, very you know adjusting to these unique circumstances in which they find themselves, which maybe aren't always words you'd think of with Germans, creative been <laughs> flexible. <laughs> We're learning about the
0: history of Lutherans in North America, particularly the leading up to the formation of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, with Reverend Doctor Rast Lawrence Rast of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We have more to talk about as we learn our history today here on the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth.
0: Today we are taking a look at the history of Lutherans in North America, particularly what leads up to the formation of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, with Reverend Dr. Lawrence Ras, Jr., President of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So we have multiple groups now in North America, multiple groups of Lutherans, some who are already speaking English, some who are holding on to German. What was the... What was the significance of that? Why was it important for some of the groups, especially those who were further west, to 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 continue carrying on in German? Why the the folks in the I believe it was General Synod and the the Pennsylvania Ministerium were they already in English as well? Is that correct?
2: Yes. It, it typically, it depended on the the Synod, but. General Synod tended to favor English, even though there were a lot of people transitioning from German to English. So they still published stuff in, in German, but they'd said that nah, we got to move all the way to English. What happens with the folks who found the Missouri Synod, the, people always think this is kind of goofy what I'm about to say, but uh, I think there's a point. When we were formed in 1847, our original name was die Deutsche Evangelische Luthera Sonoda von missouri ohio und Andernstadt. So the German Evangelical Lutheran in of Missouri, Ohio, and other states, and the German, kind of focusing on that at this point in time, oftentimes folks see that as exclusive, only German. But I actually see it as inclusive because you have these folks who are coming from all these different German territories, and, and you know, there are other church bodies that are formed that are, that are very discreetly from a particular part, of what becomes Germany, like what we typically call the Buffalo Senate, founded in 1845, comes from Prussia, and their original name is this terribly cumbersome thing that mentions specifically Prussia. Whereas the Missourians, the folks who have found the Missouri Senate, say Missouri, Ohio, and other states, and but lead off with German, and thereby are saying, you know, this is kind of a haven for German speakers, whatever. Part of Germany they may come from. There's something beyond our Germanness that actually draws us together, or our our particular area of Germany that draws us together. And what would that be? Of course, it's our confession, our shared confession, our understanding of the Scriptures. So the the this this language issue is kind of driven by that. Now there are folks, of course, you know, one of the jokes that 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 I regularly hear is. The emphasis on German remains very, very strong in the Missouri Synod up through World War One. when suddenly we say, hey, let's do English everywhere all the time. But mm-hmm. uh, the emphasis on German, some folks will say, well, that means they didn't think you could be a Lutheran and speak English. And that's not true. Yeah. In fact, at both of our seminaries, we were training past future pastors in English almost from the very beginning, because that's what most folks in America spoke but there was kind of, there was kind of an intentional outreach to German speakers because of this huge flood of immigration. And and the idea was the best way we can serve, given our resources, which of course are limited, is to focus on the German immigrants. There should be others who are focusing on Swedish speakers, Norwegian speakers, English speakers. Later on there's an English speaker. Missouri Synod, but we're going to focus very purposefully and intentionally on the German speakers because there are so many that if we just try and do everything, we're not going to do any of it well. If we try and do this, we can do this as well as we possibly can. So it's it's kind of a a, a purposeful decision, in my opinion, on the part of the, the founders of the Missouri Synod. We're going to focus on German, but that doesn't mean you can't speak English and be a good Lutheran. You can't. Granted, now you can't be as clear as you can in German with English, because English is kind of a fuzzy and sloppy language, and German is as klar, you know. But so there is a little bit of that kind of thinking going on, but
0: <laughs> that was that was really my next question. I had read or heard in conversations about the, the early or about the, the German immigrants that one of their concerns in leaving behind the German language and, and adopting English entirely was that that the, our confessions and, mm. and teaching might be lost. Some of it might be lost in translation, not in, entirely, but some of it might be lost. Are, have you read about that, or, or is sure. that a, a topic that,
2: that's certainly come up in, in your studies? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it is a concern. And part of what drives that concern is the, the thinking we were discuss, that we were discussing earlier where you have these English speakers who are saying, dump the German and just move on. Well, in in those cases, the ones who are the strongest advocates for English only are the ones who've lost their confessional identity the most. So in some people's mind, that becomes a cause and effect relationship, whereas I don't think it is. And later on we say it's obviously not. But some folks reach that conclusion so that if you speak English, you're going to lose your Lutheranism. The leaders of the Missouri Senate typically don't go that far, but they do certainly prefer German because we already have this expressed clearly here. You know, I'd fix it if it ain't broke, kind of is the, is the thinking. And, and I get their point. And, and with the immigration continuing, where you have these folks just continuing to, to move in, German speakers continuing to move in, the need is there, and the opportunity is there as well. And we kind of think, we don't, well, I'll, I'll cite Walther here. Walther says it will probably be the case, and Pieper recognizes this too. It will probably be the case in 50 to 100 years, or, you know, saying this in the last part of the 1800s, that we'll have to really kind of ramp up our English usage. But, but it's a long way off. We're going to keep doing this German thing for now. And then World War One happens, and it's mm-hmm. like, no, we're not going to keep doing this at all. And the transition happens re- really, really quickly. So there's that interplay and that kind of dynamic at work between those who say, we really want to keep the German. But, of course, their kids start speaking English, you know, and, and that's the end of it.
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's interesting that that dynamic of, of where it holds on. Like I know in the Walther League, it's, it's German still for a long time, uh, up until World War One as well. So like pockets where things just kind of hang on, that they wanted to preserve that culture in their Lutheranism and, and in these groups of people that these organizations that they have. So we've we've talked about the language. What, what were some other things in the, the landscape that these churches and these pastors, these missionaries who were going around all these the, the pioneer lands. What were some of the other factors that led up to these churches forming the what we now know as LCMS? Yeah.
2: I'll go back to my buddy Winniken, again, mm-hmm. who writes a pamphlet, a little pamphlet called the, in English translation called the Distress of the German Lutherans in North America. This is 1841, so six years before the synod is formed. And his primary audience for this are, are Lutherans back in the German states, and and it does get a lot of interest. This is one of the things that really gets Lea, Wilhelm Lea fired up when he reads through this. Where where Winnekin, after only three years, let me let me just stop there and kind of insert something. We oftentimes we think oh, these Germans were all they were isolationists. They were removing themselves from from any kind of interaction with the other cultures, especially English speaking culture. Not true. Winnikin's right in the heart of it, and he's recognizing it right away. And he interprets it for his readers in this particular little pamphlet. And he talks about a couple of things. One is the threat of German Methodism. You know, these Methodist circuit riders are everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so we've got we've to do something, or we're going to lose all these folks to the Methodist church. But worse, the only Lutherans they're going to con- come into contact with are these general synod Lutherans and they're worse than the Methodists, you know? So uh, nice. you know, we've got to do something. And We re- we read it and go, Oh boy, you know, that's pretty, just know the Methodists were also saying the same things about the Lutheran. These Lutherans are terrible. You know, we got to do something about them. So a lot of denominational rivalry going on at this point in time. But, uh, but so he talks about the religious situation and he shows that he's very aware of these different, confessional perspectives with respect to what lutheranism is and is about and as well as kind of christianity more generally speaking with the other traditions but he then also talks about the the, you know and almost every european says this all americans are interested in is making money (laughs) that's the only so some things never change right but, you know, that's all they ever talk about. How am I going to get ahead? How am I going to make some more bucks? This sort of thing. And uh, so he talks about that. What that does, of course, is particularly when you're carving out a new life for yourself on the frontier, having to cut down all these huge trees and try and start planting your crops and, and, and develop the farm. So they don't have any time to go to church. Even if there were a church around and a pastor around, they don't go because they're too busy working and trying to get ahead. So, I mean, he identifies that as well as one of the really significant challenges. And so his solution, you got to make the church accessible. And that means if they can't come to us, we have to go to them. And so you have this, what, what, what will be called inner mission. So it's a sense of doing mission work, but it's inner, that is interior to the American states. And it's again, very, very purposeful, and he's on the horse riding all over the place, and all these other guys start getting on the horses, riding all over the place, and they'll come up to a little, come up to a little place and say, you know, sprechen Sie Deutsch? And if they get a, you know, a ja, okay, you know, are you Catholic? Are you Reformed or Lutheran? I don't really care, but I just want to know. But I'm now your pastor, <laughs> uh, and it's just that direct, just that direct. I'm now your pastor. I'm going to be taking care of you, and and oftentimes folks say, great. Terrific, you know, and and that's how they end up coming into the church. So there's th- this very purposeful, intentional kind of mission activity. We call it probably evangelistic activity today, but but they're all about this at every point, and that predates the Missouri Synod and will be a huge component of the Missouri Synod once it's formed.
0: Now, the the missionaries, pastors who were taking horse from place to place, is that where we get the
2: the circuit rider? Concept. Yeah, the, the, it, it's actually been going on for more than 100 years at this point in other mm-hmm. denominations. Mm-hmm. And it's simply because, you know, whether it's Anglicans or, or whomever, there are so few pastors that they have to travel to the other one. The Methodists turn this into a purposeful way of extending the reach of their pastors. And Winnekin sees this and says, We have to do that too. Wow. So, oh. yeah. mm-hmm.
0: Give us a glimpse of what, just a hint of what we might touch on next time as we we look at the forming of the Lutheran Church
2: Missouri Synod, which we know had a really long German name before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we need to talk about the the Saxon founders and that whole component in the formation of the Missouri Synod. And we know a little bit about something about
0: that living here in the Midwest and the Saxon Lutheran Memorial here oh, in Missouri yes. County, Missouri as yep. well. We are digging into history and with Dr. Rast at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. We'll continue the conversation next week as we prepare for the LCMS convention. Thanks for joining us on the Coffee Hour today, Dr. Rast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. You've been listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth.